Hello, I'm Sean Murray and this is The Conversation, where we take an alternative look at political events and current affairs through an Irish lens. In this show, we hope to pick, probe, investigate and uncover the stories that you want to hear. We go where mainstream won't go. This week, we look at the 1981 hunger strikes and the legacy of the 10 men who died. How did this seismic event change the direction of the conflict and what have we come to understand about its impact for generations to come? My next guest is a former hunger striker who spent an incredible 70 days without food. He joined the strike on the 29th of June 1981 after Bobby Sands and three other IRA prisoners had already died in H-Block prison. But before we speak to our next guest, let's get a quick overview of this week's show. As always, we are joined by our resident co-presenter, Michelle Gillernew. Michelle is the current MP for Fermanagh, South Tyrone. She has served in the Northern Ireland Assembly as a former Minister for Agriculture and Rural Development and chairperson of the Health Committee, amongst other things. Michelle has been a Sinn Féin activist since her teens and has been elected almost continuously since 1998. And today's guest is Lawrence McKeown. He is a former IRA prisoner, author and screenwriter. After serving a life sentence in prison, Dr. Lawrence McCone obtained a PhD in Sociology at Queen's University, Belfast. He's also co-founder of the Belfast Film Festival in the mid-1990s. Lawrence McCone, welcome to the show. Good morning, John. Good morning, Michelle. So, Lawrence, tell us a bit about your childhood growing up. Well, I grew up uh, outside Rondlestown, um, which is about 20 miles from here. Very mixed area, uh, religion-wise. and. You know, Often it's odd that I never see the conflict. Here is about religion. It's been about politics, but religion has been used as the empire has used, you know, tribal difference or skin colour or whatever else. So it's a very idyllic sort of upbringing. Um, I've written about it that uh, when I was ten, I learned to drive a tractor on the a farm that was next to us, Davy Warwick's farm. Uh, lovely neighbours, wonderful people. Um, went to a very small local school, Farn Fluck. 
um, which I was delighted about years later to discover it was actually from the original Irish, which was for like wet townland, but at the time this anglicised version just seemed a bit absurd, you know. Um, I ended up getting my 11 plus and moved from this really to classroom school to uh, St Malachy's, the largest grammar school, and I hated it with a passion. And I think that's where my uh, sense of rebellion started because I began to Mitch school. So I travelled to it and uh, and hang out down around Smithfield. Or uh, I never never gone to Belfast before, uh, but I just hated the, the school. I think it was the, the this moving from this very informal, localised, rural sort of setting to now this, you know. You're studying Latin, and uh, if you go to the gym, you have to have you know different shoes for different you know purposes and all the rest of it. Um, so yeah, I I, I blame that on on, on my, uh, my my literary activities. But very interesting that I was growing up through that period of uh, of the civil rights, and uh, unbeknown to me at the time that um, certain things were unfolding that had uh, well. Sort of, Sort of had an implication for my own family because I mean, the whole civil rights movement was about an end of discrimination on housing and employment, as, as, as you know, Michelle. Um, and I think, but for me, the biggest um, impact was the activities of the Ulster Adventure Regiment, which was a locally recruited militia, um, the largest regiment in the British Army, and over 90% Protestant. And there were people from Randallstown who I would have known and played football with when we went down. Down the time we used to walk down the town of crowd of us. Uh, that was all you had, had in those days. Uh, and being stopped with him, and I remember the first night, I remember the guy's name and all, um, and him asking me, what's your name and where are you, where are you coming from, where are you going to? And he was embarrassed because he, they like me saying to me, what's, what's your name? Mm -hmm. uh, but the second, third time it happened, the embarrassment had gone and it was, it was the, the arrogance. And uh, I'd been stopped and just been held in that. None of us were involved in any, any politics or anything at that time, um, but it, it was a big influence on me and I think it was at that point, certainly by the time I came to 16, realising that um, there are two communities, but it's not about what church you go to on a Sunday, it's about that one has the uniforms and the weapons, legally, and, and the other doesn't. It has, you know, it's IRA and at that point, I think it was 16, I decided that I wanted to become part of, of, of what was happening and to become part of was to join the was to join the IRA, which I did whenever I was seventeen years of age. You were on that nineteen eighty one hunger strike, Lawrence. You're a walking miracle. You went seventy days without food. Tell us more about that. Um, well in the, the nineteen eighty one hunger strike there was initially there was only four people ever going to be on it. Um, that began with Bobby and Frank and Patsy and Rimmon. And um, and then one of them died that, that they would be, be replaced. So there was ever, only ever going to be four on it at one time. But in June, <coughs> it was decided to increase the numbers on it to eight. So each Monday, someone new joined it. Uh, not because someone had died, but because they were bringing up the numbers. So I joined on the, which was the last one out of that four, uh, to join on the 29th of June. Um, by that time, um, four people had already, had already died. Um, I'm in the... Uh, a fun set of people, you can only understand the hunger strike in the context of that five years before it, um, where it's a total, okay, you understand the big political issue, the criminalisation, the attempts to criminalise the struggle, and so on and so forth, but it also becomes personalised with just even the, the prison guards, the screws at the door, you know, and it's not like, oh, well, you've got a range of choices, A, B, C, D, which one will go for it. It was either you walk out with hands up and capitulate, and become yes or no, sort of three bags full, sir, or 
it's hunger strike in, in, in that context. Um, I suppose the biggest thing for me when I began it was um, a week later the Irish Commission for Justice and Peace came in. Um, so I was taken up to the hospital along with Beck. I was in the, the same wing with Beck. And Mickey Devine was brought from uh, age five. So it was an opportunity to see all of the, uh, the people there, people who were still alive. And an um, important lesson also that day that um, everybody was brought in who it was longer sick. The only one missing was Joe Bidon. And uh, if I hadn't known that, I wouldn't have recognised the person that came through the door who was in a, in a wheelchair. And Joe was always nicknamed Fat Joe. He always had been able to retain a bit more, bit more fat than the rest of us. And that's, which is odd, then most people were, were undernourished. Like I was 10 and a half stone when I began the hunger strike. I mean, about 13 and a half now or something, when I'm not carrying mm -hmm. massive excesses. Because everybody was malnourished after a long time. Mm -hmm. But Joe was brought in and his head was like over the side, he was in a wheelchair, and um, there were like um, troubles coming down the side of his mouth. And it's almost that thing where you see someone physically disabled, and it's almost a thing I think, well, maybe they're mentally as well. But when he spoke, you just knew this, this is Joe, Joe McDonald, and so everybody got a smoke. You were allowed to smoke in the, in the prison hospital, you weren't allowed to smoke on the, on the protest. And the makeup of the ACJ, the Irish Commission for Justice and Peace, was Dublin government appointees, Catholic Church, um, SDLP, so sort of uh, not Republicans on the ground. And they were come to say that they had been in talks with the British government and they had some like, uh, not only the, the basis of the five demands, but they were saying that even the six demands. And um, the whole thing went on for, 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 for two days. And, and it's always that thing where people talk about, you know, was there, you know, was there deals and all this? There never was a deal. There was always offers of what would be there if you were to end this. And that was never going to be enough for us, given, given the experience of the first one, and particularly given now that, that, that four people had already, already died in the meantime. You're still tuned into The Conversation, your weekly alternative probe of political events and current affairs through an Irish lens. I'm joined by my co-host, Michelle Gildenew, alongside our special guest, Dr. Lawrence McKeown. Martin Horson then died, died fairly suddenly uh, and very painfully. And this is the thing, normally people died in different ways, but um, if you couldn't keep water down uh, and you're told to drink at least six pints of water a day and take salt because you need it for your, your brain, um, but if you can't keep the water down, if you're being sick, then uh, all these toxins in your body start to, you know, the kidneys come under massive pressure. It happened to Patty Quinn, it happened to Martin Horson. So like for the last couple of hours of his life, he's thrashing about hallucinating and he's away in another world. And I learned in later years after his release and talking to Brandon, his brother, like Brandon was on one side of him holding him down and the priest, Father Morphy was on another side holding him. So he wouldn't smash his face against the metal bed end. And then he did, he did settle and for about an hour and then he, and then he died. And, and the really, when you're in the hospital, the irony was um, you're no longer uh, a protesting prisoner because you are in the hospital, you're wearing pajamas, you're not refusing to wear the prison clothes. Around about 40 odd days, my, my eyesight started growing up. It was the same for, for most people and seeing, at the start, seeing, very, seeing double, but very clearly double. Uh, and then that changed into a more hazy, fuzzy sort of thing. And then it starts to be a light start to, Annoying and we had that like, strip lighting, which is what anyway. Um, but I suppose one of the, the main thing that we ended up noticing was that someone um, very close to death often had a bell movement. And I remember when we saying, but I'd read before about how if you're hung, your bells open. And this was almost like in reverse, the body just letting go before it. And it happened until Tom McElroy 
and Mummer and him make a define talking about it and uh, and afterwards it was a real drop in energy. You're already, you're already totally exhausted, but after that usually nobody came out of their cell again in, 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 in the ward because there were cells even though you're not prison hospital. So it happened to make a define and you that probably what would reckon you two or three days after that and uh, and then basically what happened. So when it happened to myself and you um, yeah, and it's a very painful, it's a very lengthy couple of hours. Uh, and, and literally just, I made it back to a bit, I held back to a bit and, and, and didn't get out of it after that. Um, and then it was, it was around that time that my, my parents were allowed in, families were allowed in if you were seen to be at a critical stage. And um, they came in, my father, my mother, um, sister and brother, all of them apart from my mother asked me, to come off the hunger strike and I said I wasn't. And it wasn't because my mother was reporting, she wasn't, we just always had a... I, mean, I, I don't recall any adult conversation with my mother because I was on the run from I was at 17 and a half. Then I was in jail when I was 19. Um, you only get an odd, you know, because other people were visiting and you don't get much time to talk about it. Then we're on the protest. So never um, had those type of adult conversations that we really have liked, you know, and both my parents had later died in jail, so we never, never got to have them, but there was just always a, a very close bond, she just showed me unconditional love, and she, um, she wasn't going to ask me to do something that she knew was, was against me. Um, that was the 68th day, and I remember them coming in. Um, 69th, I don't, I don't really recall at all. Apparently I was responding to voices, but was getting confused, and I was just either sleep or starting to go unconscious a bit. Um, and then on the, the 70th day, which was a Sunday, apparently the doctor goes out and checks all your reflexes and says, look, now you're in deep, deep coma and you're not going to be any response. And what, uh, what they had was power of attorney, which is that um, the prison weren't going to force feed us, but if uh, your next of kin signed a document, the power of attorney shifted them and they could authorise medical intervention which is what my mother did. And um, again, it was only in, in, in later years I thought back on it. What I do recall her saying to me uh, on that sixth eighth day was, and we were on our own, she had daughters gone out and um, she says, you know what you have to do and I know what I have to do. My mother was a very quiet person and, and religious in the sense it was quiet faith, like she wouldn't have run religion down your throat. And an awful situation for, for families and that had been brought on. I mean, that already been a number of people. Uh, and I often wondered if I had been the first, would have would have looked on it differently, or if somebody had a died after me, would have looked on it differently. But neither of those happened. Uh, and I said, my own mother died less than two years after it. So it's this awful thing that families were placed in that dilemma, and a big pressure on them from the Catholic Church, and particularly from from Father Fall, that a, a good mother or a good wife would would, would authorise medical intervention, which by implication means that you're a bad bad wife or a bad mother if they don't. Um, I regain consciousness in the intensive care unit of the Royal Victoria Hospital, just a few hundred yards down from, from here. And uh, and, and, and the, the interesting too, thinking, thinking back on it, because it was a, a female voice, saying, it must have seen it was coming, coming around, said, uh, Lawrence, you're, you're in the intensive care unit at the Royal Victoria Hospital, we're just going to turn you over here slowly, and different ones, because I was seven stone at the end of the longest street. You're only bones in the hospital they would have had you on the sheepskin room, but in the hospital <laughs> obviously don't have those. Uh, and, and and was turned me over and sorry I remember which was like it's gentle hands on you, you know, it's a female voice and it's a gentle touch. Whereas for like the previous five years 
you were just, you didn't have any of that, not at all. And there were British soldiers in the the bed, and all I could see, it's, it's almost blind, you could see the black figures, and again, it was just hard to open eyes. And then the following day, I was taken to the, uh, the military, you know, the secure ward of the Moscow Park Hospital, where all the ones were there, like Potty Quinn and Pat McGowan and that there. I was there for the next few weeks, and then moved back to the, to the prison. Previous, they had kept people there maybe for six, seven weeks, but I think again, they'd come to a point where they were trying to put pressure on, on on the hunger strike and on the people who were still on it. Um, the time I was moved back, I was still holding on the walls to try to walk. Um, I arrived back into each block four, and uh, when you arrive in that block, there'd be a, a screw in the, the circle, and they're meant to shout the numbers. So somebody's going for a visit, it would have been right uh, one off, um, 98 here, or, or one on. And whenever I walked in, uh, this guy shouted, uh, one field hunger striker on. Normally to walk across the straightest route was straight across the, the circle, but I had to walk around the the, um, the wall just holding on to it and, and could hardly see. And uh, ended ended up down in uh, down in the wing and uh, people heard heard me coming in and I was exhausted literally. I was ex I got onto the bed and, and just lay down and um, I'd ended up with nystagmus from the hunger strike, which is twitching of the eyeballs, which are going rapidly, so to open them you became really nauseous because everything's just moving like this here. And so it was easier just to... And someone in the cell next door to me knocked it and <coughs> shouted and asked who it was. And um, it was Ron McCartney, he was on the first hunger strike. And I said who it was and he got up and uh, shouted out the door and uh, everybody was shouting up to welcome and all the rest of it. and. Uh, Somebody said, "Come to your door." And it just, it was just, um, I, I just couldn't. It was, I mean, it just, it was just wiped, wiped out. And that was like three, three weeks, three and a half weeks after the hunger strike. That hunger strike ended uh, a few days later, and um, we had had five demands. We got one demand, um, which were replaced not in the context. People say, oh, "No, was it successful or not?" And you say, "Well, you want to narrow it down to the prison. You have five demands, you get one." You don't really say, "Well, that's." That's not, that's not success, but it was never about simply prison conditions. It was a much wider struggle, and if you look at it in terms of what we did get out and what the struggle got out of it, and it's all well known now, like the IRA got loads of weapons and money and, and political and moral support, and you realised afterwards that you know, the eyes of the world were, were on it, and particularly you know, the eyes of the world of, of those who had suffered under the, the empire. Um, and I think maybe for the first time Republicans just realised just this support and interest that you had worldwide. You know, when you have Fidel Castro speaking up at the uh, United Nations, you have the Indian Parliament holding a minute silence, you have protests you know, uh, across the world whenever Bobby died. Um, so in that sense it was a major victory. For us in the jail we got um, the right to wear our own clothes, which Bobby said was important on two, two levels, symbolically. Um, but always said we wouldn't wear the prison uniform, and the, the blanket song was I wear no convict uniform, nor make serve my time. So we, we never did wear their, their convict uniform. But on a more practical level, it allowed us to get out of the cell for the first time in five years and get into the canteen, get out of the yard, and, and, and plan and strategize how we were going to get the outstanding demands, which, which we did um, through a whole um, series of protests in different ways. But 
that started in 1981. That was the end of of that type of protest in the prison. Like, the Republican prisoners, if you look at the history, burning in the camp, various other protests. Even the blanket protest itself, it's sort of like, yeah, bring it on, you know, we'll, we'll take it. And it's not in a macho way, but it's, um, it's like Terence McSweeney's, it's not those who can inflict the most, it's those who can endure the most, which sometimes I wonder about because you can, you, you can crush people and crush their spirit. Thankfully, it never, it never happened to us. Lords, it's been an honour to have you in here today. Thanks for coming. It's always great to see you. Thank you. As we have come to the end of the series, I'd like to finish this episode on a different note. Much of what we've attempted to do during this last 13 weeks is offer an alternative look at Irish politics, free from the constraints of broadcast editorial control. We hope that you've enjoyed what we've had to offer, so rather than leave you with your usual history segment, I'd like to finish with a eulogy from one of our finest literary greats. Leaving the white glow of filling stations and a few lonely street lamps among fields, you climb the hills towards Newton Hamilton, past the Fuse Forest, out beneath the stars. Along that road, a high, bare pilgrim's track where Sweeney fled before the bloodied heads, goat beards and dogs' eyes in a demon pack blazing out of the ground, snapping and squealing. What blazed ahead of you? A faked roadblock. The red lamp swung, the sudden brakes and stalling engine, voices, heads hooded and the cold-nosed gun. Or in your driving mirror, tailing headlights that pulled out suddenly and flagged you down where you weren't known and far from what you knew. The lowland clays and waters of Loch Beg. Church Island spire, its soft tree line of you. There you once heard guns fired behind the house long before rising time, when duck shooters haunted the marigolds and bulrushes, but still were scared to find spent cartridges, acrid, brassy, genital, ejected on your way across the strand to fetch the cows. For you and yours, and yours and mine, fought shy, spoke an old language of conspirators and could not crack the whip or seize the day. Big-voiced scullions, herders, feelers round haycocks and hindquarters, talkers in byres, slow arbitrators of the burial ground. Across that strand of yours the cattle graze up to their bellies in an early mist and now they turn their unbewildered gaze to where we work our way through squeaking sedge drowning in dew. Like a dull blade with its edge honed bright Loch Beg half shines under the haze. I turn because the sweeping of your feet has stopped behind me to find you on your knees with blood and roadside muck in your hair and eyes then kneel in front of you in brimming grass and gather up cold handfuls of the dew to wash you, cousin I dab you clean with moss 
fine as the drizzle out of a low cloud. I lift you under your arms and lay you flat, with rushes that shoot green again. I plait green scapulars to wear over your shroud. And that completes our final episode for this series. We want to thank you all for tuning in to the conversation and growing our audience throughout the series. I'd like to thank our special guest, Lawrence McKeown, and our resident co-host, Michelle Gildernew. In the meantime, we hope to see more of the conversation in the new year. We haven't gone away, you know. I'm Sean Murray. Bye for now.